The reading for today is from Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, saying as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Ashley. All right, if you could uh, actually, with the reading was from 25, but we're going to start in 24, if you'd turn to Acts chapter 24. Um, a couple things I want to mention before I get started. Uh, was gone last week, as many of you know, and I appreciate uh, the well wishes for our anniversary. Um, you know, when I leave, uh, it, it's, uh, it's interesting how the dominoes begin to, to, to fall, and, and um, I'm, I would say this even if he wasn't in here. Uh, it's always a lot more work for people like Cody and Stephanie when I'm not around, and I really do appreciate uh, the way they step up. Not only does Cody have to prepare uh, a sermon and to preach, but he also has to be in charge of the music. And anyway, uh, same with Stephanie. I really appreciate the way they step up, especially uh, for a weekend like that where, where Jackie and I are away celebrating our anniversary. I will say, however, I understand that in the first service there was some confusion about which anniversary we were celebrating, that neither Cody nor our oldest daughter could tell you what number it was. And so... <laughs> Um, Jackie and I have this incredible formula. It's revolutionary. We take the number um, of our anniversary from the year before and we add one. It, it seems to work really well for us. Um, anyway, that's snarky and probably uncalled for, but I couldn't resist. So uh, anyway, uh, we are getting close to the end of the book of Acts. I think um, October 8th is the last sermon we'll have in the book of Acts. We've been going through it. And let me say this, um, I, I know this has been, in some respects, a challenge, this, this um, walk through Acts, especially recently with the large chunks of scripture that we've been taking on every Sunday morning. And I know it's a challenge because 
when, we, uh, when all the redemption pastors and, and worship leaders get together for the preaching collective every week, we're talking about what a challenge it is to handle as many verses as we have to handle. Cody last week covered a couple of chapters in, in one uh, sermon. And, and so we understand that challenge. By the way, we're going to have a different challenge in 2018. We're going to take 40 weeks to go through the book of Ephesians. So there's going to be, there are going to be some Sundays where we're doing only two verses on a Sunday morning in the book of Ephesians. So then it's going to be the other way. We're going to be kind of void of context. But for, for those of you who are struggling to keep up, I would just encourage you to take the time uh, three or four times a week to just read the, not only the passage that we're going through, but the, a couple of chapters before and a couple of chapters after so that you can kind of see the lead up and get the context and then see what happens afterward. Um, it, I know in my redemption community, that's what a lot of the people have been doing there, and that helps keep them focused on Sunday morning as to the context. It also helps you to begin to recognize a lot of the patterns that are in the text. Um, and, and we're going to begin to see some of those patterns, and I'm going to reference some of them this morning, and I know Cody did uh, last week as well. Uh, for instance, the simple pattern that um, Paul's defense never, uh, never wavers and it never deviates. It is consistent and constant in terms of, of why he says uh, he's doing what he's doing. He never, he never changes it to fit uh, substantially in order to fit some context that will benefit him. He is always talking about who Jesus is, even if he could say something else that might get him uh, out of prison. So that's one of the things. Uh, but also just knowing the characters. If you read and reread, you'll, you, you'll notice that there are characters coming in and out. This week we have uh, Felix and then Festus. And, and just keeping track of these different characters, the more you, you just read it. Um, uh, you'll be able to kind of keep track of them. So last week, to give you the context for today, last week uh, the context was that Paul gets to go before Felix, who is the Roman governor over his, his, his county seat, so to speak, is in Caesarea, but he's the Roman governor over Judea and Galilee and all of those areas uh, that Jesus ministered in, that Paul has uh, sometimes ministered in, and including Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very, very large area, and Paul gives uh, yet another defense speech to uh, Felix, and here's another pattern that you, you'll see, and uh, you'll saw, you saw this last week. Uh, every time Paul gets up to give one of these defense speeches because he's being charged with these crimes, uh, his defense speeches are never allowed to finish. He always gets to some point, and then somebody interrupts him because he said something that was offensive to him. And the two most common things that offend people are his ministry to the Gentiles. A few weeks ago, we saw that. The minute he said that Jesus called him to go and minister to the Gentiles, I mean, literally, all heck broke loose. They, they couldn't, the Jews could not handle it. They, they said, not those people. If you think that they're going to be included in this, we're not on board. The other thing that gets people uh, to, to stop him, and this is what happened with Felix last week. The minute Felix heard about the resurrection, the resurrection, that stopped him in his tracks. And so it's always the Gentiles and the resurrection. In other words, the gospel is for everyone, and the gospel can be hard to believe. Those are the two things that make people stop uh, Paul from talking. So now he's going to be uh, in front of Festus, and he's still fighting 
uh, this charge of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which he didn't do and they cannot prove, uh, but they ginned up this char- the Jews ginned up this charge against Paul because uh, in their law, in the Jewish law, they knew that this was, uh, this was an offense that could be um, punishable by execution. Uh, and, but the primary witnesses of this horrific crime of actually bringing an outsider into the temple, uh, none of them were available to interrogate. So this is all hearsay and third-hand evidence now, evidence that they're able to get. They also want to charge Paul with believing in the resurrection, which of course they do. And Cody talked about this last week, about how there were two different major religious sects of the Jews. There were the Pharisees, which had uh, all the numbers. There were about 90% of the professional religious Jewish people were Pharisees, and they believed in the eventual resurrection. Uh, the other 10% were the Sadducees, but they were the ones with the power. They controlled the, the ruling council. They were the ones that had the money. They did not believe in the resurrection, and so the old joke, joke is that they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. So that's how you can remember what they're calling. Ah, another dad joke. Okay, so anyway, um, but, but, but Paul played to that. Uh, he saw that the Sadducees and the, Res- and the, and the Pharisees were united, so he, he really played to the resurrection, which he believes in. And ultimately, if you believe in the Messiah, if you're a Jew who believes in the coming Messiah, you have to believe in the resurrection, ultimately. Um, and so he played to that. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that, that sort of thing. And it did cause some uh, disruption. But Ananias, the chief priest at that time, is a Sadducee. And so for him, this is... A major crime. But notice these crimes. None of them are crimes against Rome. None of them are crimes against Caesar. They are all crimes, supposedly, ostensibly, against the Jews. And in fact, they're spelled out a couple of weeks ago in the text that they're saying that Paul is is, uh, bringing um, offense against these people, us, the Jews, uh, the law, the Mosaic law, and the temple. And so that's what they're uh, simply, they're, they're really upset about. But Paul's defense, as I said, is consistent. It's also simple and strong. His defense is very simple. He said, look, all I did was go to Jerusalem to worship. That's all I was doing in the temple. I was just there to worship. And I have documentation and evidence of that. I didn't disrupt anything. I didn't stir anything up. I was minding my own business. It was everybody else that was stirring things up. I was just there hanging out. But most of all, you find his defense rooted in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 24. He says, I worship the God of our fathers. I am a good Jew. I believe everything that was laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. They they believe exactly what I believe. I don't even know why there's such a problem here. That there is a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's an interesting little thing to talk about. That means there is a heaven and there is a hell. That's what that means. And those are both real. And then he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So what he's saying is, I am exactly what these men would want me to be. I am a good and faithful Jew. The only difference is that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they don't. That's the only difference. Is this worth killing each other over? That is the only difference. I want you to consider something this morning. I think this is profound. Um, Luke from Gateway brought this up. He said, think about Paul. 
Paul is doing everything right. There isn't a legitimate charge that can be brought against Paul. He's done everything right. He's done everything that God has asked him to do, and I would say even more. He has suffered more than he ever thought he would, even though God told him he was going to have to suffer in his ministry. But he's done everything right, and yet, in the world, he's losing. He's done everything right. God, why is this happening to me? I've been faithful. I've done everything right. I've, did every, I've, I've done everything you told me to do. And yet I'm losing. You ever feel like that? You think nobody else has ever gone through that before? So this, what we look at today, is the result of his defense speech and his first shot at this new governor, uh, Festus. And here's the big idea that we're going to be working toward. There are three roles of a Christ follower. We are disciples, we are sojourners, and we are exiles. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through the text, pointing towards that, and then we're going to unpack that big idea uh, at the end. And so starting in verse 22 of chapter 24, Paul just said that he believes in the resurrection, and this is what happens. But Felix, the governor, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he understands that Christianity is now, uh, quote, a sect of Judaism that believes that the Messiah has actually come. So he has, an understand, he has a pretty good understanding of Christianity. But he put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, in other words, the, the judge, the tribune, when he comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion, the Roman guard, who was over a hundred men, that he should be, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. That is actually a privilege, and they're doing this, Felix does this for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Paul is a Roman citizen, and we've discovered that, so he has certain rights, but also it's because Felix really doesn't think Paul's done anything wrong. But he's holding Paul as a political favor to the Jews. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about, as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, that's all part of the gospel, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, just for a second there, think about that. Uh, he hasn't been indicted. There have been charges brought, but Paul hasn't been indicted, if you want to use our system, okay? And yet they hold him, not for two days, not for two weeks, not for two months, but for two years he's being held. Paul's on a mission for God, and yet for two years, God allows or causes him to be held for two years in prison, so you look at verses 22 and 23, and you realize that Felix doesn't buy this game that Paul's accusers are trying to run. 
And, and you kind of look at Felix and go, well, maybe he's a good guy. Just because he doesn't buy the game that his accusers are trying to run, that doesn't make him a good guy. He's not a good guy. You look at verses 24 through 27, you realize that Felix is also corrupt and nervous. That's not a good combination. Anxiety and corruption. So he and his wife decide to hear Paul, and Paul presents the gospel. He talks about righteousness. He said, righteousness comes from one place, and that is in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came and lived without sin and then was crucified on the cross as the perfect uh, sacrificial lamb, the last time that blood would have to be shed for our sin, and then he was raised from the dead. That's where our righteousness lays. It doesn't lay in us or anything that we do. We are decidedly unrighteous because of the sin that we have in our lives. Sin that has been committed, sin that we are committing, sin that we will commit. But we can find righteousness in Christ by coming to him. If we come to Christ Jesus, the righteous one, we exchange our sin for his righteousness. Paid for at the cross. Our sin is paid for at the cross. The, 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 the fancy term is that his righteousness, when we come to him, is imputed to us, and our sin is imputed to him on the cross where it's paid for, and we become righteous. But our righteousness is found in Christ. It's a beautiful and necessary exchange that delivers us, that saves us. It's magnificent. That's the gospel. That is, that is the good news. It's why in Paul's letters in the New Testament, 176 times he says, you are in Christ. In Christ. He says that because that's where your righteousness is. It doesn't come from any other place. Let me ask you, are you righteous? Is your righteousness found in the Savior, in Jesus, in Christ. So that's righteousness. Then he talks about self-control. This is an ironic principle about the gospel. Self-control, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So in Galatians, it says, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self... Um, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and... Self-control, thank you for those of you who are helping to remind me. But self-control, okay, wait a minute. My righteousness is in Jesus, but I'm called to self-control. How does that work? It's very ironic. We have self-control because of Christ in us, because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's where our self-control, so it's ironic. Our self-control really isn't ours. In fact, I would argue that our self-control is in our weakness, because that's the only time that the power of God can be made present in our life through Christ. Paul specifically says this in his second letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 12. It's a great passage. It's one that if you haven't studied much, I would just suggest that you read it and study it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 or 11. What Paul is saying is that God at one point was giving him some magnificent revelations. God was doing some work in Paul's life that was miraculous and was incredible. And, and for some people would be hard to believe. But 
I've found, and people have written about this, that when, when God is doing something truly miraculous and special in somebody's life, very often what that results in is pride for the person that God is working through. We become filled with hubris and arrogance and and self-righteousness. We begin to think we're all that, even though it's God's power in us. And so Paul says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of the greatness of these revelations that God was giving me, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. That's a metaphor for God made me suffer. And we don't know exactly what that thorn is. There's all kinds of theories about it. But he gave him a thorn. He made him suffer. He gave him tribulation in his life. Those of us who come to the gospel thinking that eliminates all suffering, you need to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God gave him this thorn in the flesh. And then he even calls it, he says, it was a messenger from Satan. God gave Paul, the apostle, a messenger from Satan even, in order to keep him from becoming conceited. That's how important humility is to God. And and, and Paul said, and so I prayed three times. Good, You, you have troubles, you have trials, you have suffering in your life, pray that God would remove it. So Paul prayed three times, and what was God's answer? Not gonna remove the the thorn in the flesh. Not gonna remove the messenger from Satan. Instead, Paul my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to remove your circumstances. I'm going to give you the grace and the power to go through your circumstances. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in what? Your weakness. Your weakness. That's what self-control means. In our weakness, we give our lives up to the filling of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in our lives. And then, he, and then the third part of the gospel is the coming judgment. This is real. There is a judgment coming. We, we want to live in this world where there's absolutely no judgment, but if the reality is there's going to be a judgment, your thinking that there isn't going to be judgment can't stop it. Do you know what the definition of biblical character is? This, this was written by John Townsend, who's an author. He says, the definition of biblical character is the ability to meet the demands of reality. In other words, it's the ability to quit living in an ideal fantasy world and start meeting the demands of reality. God works that in our lives. The coming judgment is real, and a decision must be made because sin is serious. So he says, Felix and Drizilla, come to Jesus. And Felix was alarmed. Literally, he was frightened. He was filled with fear. And it's important to understand, it's not, the, not, the, not reverential fear. It's not the kind of fear that, that leads um, to the wisdom of God. It's not the kind of fear that leads to submitting to God's will. It's not the kind of fear that inspires awe and worship and humble submission. But rather, it's a fear that leads to defensiveness and self-exaltation. When people get defensive and self-exalting and self-righteous, very often it is a response to the fear that they have in their lives because they realize they're losing control. So he gets very defensive. He gets very self-exalted. And it's not in the text, but I can imagine him going away. Just based on my experiences, I can imagine him, my experiences in my own life, I can imagine him going away thinking something like, 
why, why would I need this gospel thing? I am a man of power and status. I'm a governor for the Roman Empire, for crying out loud. I don't need any good news. I have power. I have status. I'm blessed. I'm the governor. I'm a good person. I've got a wife named Drazilla. Can life get better than that? <laughs> Submit that it cannot. I, I like this guy, Paul, and I don't think he's done anything wrong, but I'm not buying into this goofy Jesus on the cross Messiah thing. I, I imagine that's what he's thinking. But also, he's hoping for a payoff. So he's corrupt. In the midst of this, we find that he's just another guy with his hand out hoping for a payoff. And he tried for two years. He kept Paul locked up for two years and continued to bring him in for the sole purpose of hoping that maybe this will be the time that Paul brings in a payoff. And it's interesting because Roman law, we have all kinds of historical documentation of this, including the historian Josephus, uh, who claim that, that uh, bribery was a, a, an offense in, in the Roman government that was you could be executed if you were um, charged with it, but it was also assumed that every Roman um, uh, governor was going to take bribes. It, so it was, it was an offense punishable by execution, but it was assumed that you were going to do it, so it never got charged unless it happened to be convenient for somebody else. Uh, Josephus writes that it was quote, rampant. It was standard operating procedure. So Felix now exits and Festus comes in because apparently Marshall Dillon wasn't available. Some of you will get that reference. Others of you need to look it up. I was alive in the 60s, so, and I think that show was on in the 50s even. Anyway, spent too much time on that. But Felix, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Festus also does the politically expedient. He, he takes Fest, uh, Felix's um, counsel and leaves Paul in custody so that the Jews will appreciate him. Let me stop here before we finish with the, the 12 verses and 25 and just make a note of this. We need to understand that human nature does not change. It just doesn't change. We like to think that we can change human nature through systems and through um, moral callings and things like that, but human nature doesn't change. And one of the areas that we could talk about is political corruption. A lot of people have this idea that political co corruption is really just sort of a recent phenomenon. It's not. There's been political co corruption ever since uh, the creation of human beings. It's been around a long time, like since Genesis chapter 3. It's not 10 years old. Uh, the, the, the Bushes didn't start it. Clinton didn't start it. Nixon didn't start it. I know that'll shock some of you. Nixon didn't, didn't start it, okay? Uh, Warren Harding didn't start it. Uh, neither did Andrew Jackson. Those are presidents of the United States in the past, if you're wondering. Hey, here you go. The medieval popes. A lot has been written about how corrupt the medieval popes were. They didn't start it. The Caesars, before the medieval popes, they didn't start corruption. It's because of fallen human nature. Sin is pervasive. Corruption is not worse today than ever before. It just feels that way because we're experiencing it. That's why. And admittedly, it is maddening. I would ask this question just to ponder, though. Why is it that human beings are so willing to admit that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but so unwilling to embrace God's grace, his answers, and his wisdom in the midst of that? That's the puzzling question to me. Not that there's corruption. So now we transition into 25. First paragraph. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went to, up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, 
because they were planning to am- an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. The plot thickens. These men uh, want Paul convicted, but they're tired of waiting now, and so they plan an ambush. They're going to just assassinate him. But Festus just got, back, got into um, his position, and so he's in, he's in no hurry. He wants more info. He's also trying to figure out how to milk it himself for a political payoff. And so he's smart, though. He turns the tables. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. If you're really serious about this, you come down to my place. That's a 62-mile walk. That's, that's, okay, if you're really serious, come on down to my place. Let's, let's, let's have a home game for us and for Paul and see if you're uh, really serious. And so that's what happens, verses 6 through 12. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, and he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat at, uh, on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So he's, he's taking the place of the judge. He's going to judge this case. And when Paul had arrived, the Jews would come down from Jerusalem, so they did. They said, we're serious about this, we want to charge him. They came down from Jerusalem, they stood around and bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove, that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? And there be tried on these charges before me. And Paul said, no, thank you. He said, and he's right. Listen listen to how he argues. This is really good. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal right now. Right, You are Caesar's tribunal. This is where I ought to be tried. I'm already being tried. I don't need another trial. I'm already doing this for you guys. To the Jews I have done no wrong, and you yourself, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. If I've done something wrong, fine, execute me. That's fine, but you can't prove it. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And he said, I appeal to Caesar. What he means there is I'm not going to Jerusalem. As a Roman citizen, I have a right to have my case heard in Rome before Caesar. He says, I'm not going to Jerusalem. That would be dangerous for me. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Festus really didn't need to appeal to the council. He didn't need to talk to them at all. He should have just said it. But part of Festus's problem was that he went to the council and said, We overplayed our hand. Okay, we've been trying to get a bribe out of him, and now he's just going to appeal to Caesar. We've, we've pretty much overplayed our hand. We should have let him go. We should have already let him go. So Paul gets yet another hearing. They can't prove him anything. He's broken no laws against the Jews or against the Roman government. But like I said, Felix is corrupt. Um, It's interesting. uh, Josephus also writes that uh, if you were appointed a governor, it was assumed that part of your income as as a governor for Rome was going to come from bribes. So they, they, you got a nice salary, but it was purposely, artificially kept low because they assumed you were going to get these bribes. It was so common that the behavior was just considered um, normal. But, but we need to understand this. Um, this is the human nature of this tragedy. Both of these men of power, Felix and Festus, were way more interested in the adulation of man and in a payoff than they were in justice. 
They were the arbiters of justice, ostensibly, but they were way more interested in the adulation and affirmation of man and in earning a quick buck than in actually doing something about genuine justice. That's just sad. So Paul doesn't want to go to Jerusalem. It would be a home game for the Jews. He also knows they'll try to assassinate him on the way uh, there. The further he gets from Jerusalem, the better it is uh, for him. And so in response to this threat by Festus, which he wasn't going to go through with, which we learn later on. We'll learn in the next couple of weeks. They were never going to send him to Jerusalem. It was just a threat. In response, he says, it's time for me to go to Rome. And he has that right as a Roman citizen. It'll be very difficult for him to get convicted in Rome. So you're listening to all this, and you go, all right, so what? So what? I mean, we can see how unfair this is, how tough it is. It's a very difficult road. When you believe something that is contrary to the currents of culture, to the currents of human nature, and to the currents of popular wisdom, it is a tough road. I've been thinking about this, like I said, as I've, I've read scripture. Here are the three roles of a Christian, and, and, and really three traits that go along with each of these roles. First of all, we're a disciple. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple or a learner. And learning, being a disciple, takes humble submission. That is the requirement. Paul humbly submits. I, I will, again, just point you to 2 Corinthians 12 as an example of his humble submission. Christians are also sojourners. Some people have used the word pilgrim instead. We're, we're on a journey. There is a destination, the New Jerusalem, but here on earth, it's always going to be a journey up until we take our last breath. And the, the required characteristic there is perseverance. Paul is at 25 years in the ministry at this point. Think that didn't take some perseverance? Think he didn't learn perseverance and steadfastness and patience along the way? And then, after 25 years, he's kept in custody for two years for no real good reason. Now he's got to take a long boat ride to Rome, which ends up being dangerous, and he's going to be in prison in Rome for another couple of years as well. Christians are also exiles. We are exiles. And that requires long-suffering or patience, if you want to use that word. It requires long-suffering. Paul's people understood long-suffering. They'd, uh, they'd been exiles many times before. They were exiles in Egypt. They were exiles in Babylon. And they were now currently, in Paul's day, they were living as exiles in the Roman Empire. They were living as exiles. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he reminds us of our citizenship. He says, your citizenship is in heaven. Uh, the way I describe it is, is we're, we're dual citizens. We have a citizenship in heaven and we have a citizenship here on earth. But the one that really counts, the one that's eternal, is our citizenship in heaven. We're dual citizens. But because we have a citizenship in heaven and we know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, we are exiles even among this world, among this culture among this society. And now think about Paul in particular. He was in exile from his own people at this point, right? He was in exile from his own people. And he's fighting to get back in with his people because he loves them and he wants to see them saved, but he's exiled. And yet he has joy and blessing in his life. Every time they bring Paul out, think about, I mean, wouldn't you, I would get so angry 
I'd be, I'd be waving my finger and shaking my fist, and I would, I would get to that breaking point, I believe, where I would finally do whatever it took to get out of prison. Paul never wavers. He comes out and he says, I know I could say this or that or do this or that, and I could get out of prison, but instead, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And then right back into the, into the prison cell he goes, because that's what he does. And he, and he does it with great joy and with great love. Faithful obedience over time has a way of yielding joy, that, that sought-after joy that every one of us wants. A couple, a month, now it's more than a month ago now, I was in L.A. for a conference for a week, and I was there with a friend, a good friend, and, and let me tell you something. He, he was literally having just the week from hell. It was awful. One thing after another was happening to him. And I remember Thursday afternoon, he had been beat up all week long, and, and, and he just looks at me and he goes, and yet in the midst of it, I feel this great peace and this great joy, and I look at my life and I realize how blessed I am. He says, I wouldn't have that if I didn't know the gospel, if I didn't know Jesus. I am blessed, even in the midst of what I'm going through. It's author and pastor Bill Hybels saying that the way down is actually the way up. <laughs> The way down, the first will be last, the last will be first. The way down, descending into greatness. That's what Jesus did when he came to save us. And if anyone should not be in exile, it's Paul. He's living in exile among his own people. If Paul's not immune, are we? And how about Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God? Listen to this from the Gospel of John. This is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was in exile. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. Jesus is in exile. Jesus was a sojourner. I just mentioned Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes that he was in heaven, but he came to earth and became like a man. And went to the cross. He sojourned to earth for us. He was also a disciple. Jesus says this in John chapter 8. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have learned from him. Jesus was a disciple. When, when you have lifted up the son of man. Then you will know that I am he. When you crucify me then you're going to know. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus, Paul, exile, sojourner, disciple, that's our roles too. And we need to be submissive, humbly submissive, and perseverant, and long-suffering. What do you do when there's nothing left to do and you've done everything right? You rejoice in the knowledge that we are participating in the sufferings of the Savior. Both Paul and Peter say that. 
Some of you are like, okay, so why, why now? Why is this so important now? I, I think it's an important message for right now. Truth is, look around you and just look, just look around you and follow culture. We live in a context that is becoming increasingly antagonistic to who we are and what we believe. And if you don't believe that's true, you just really have your head in the sand. You're in denial. You're experiencing cognitive dissonance. And, and it's going to be tougher and tougher to, to tell people that you believe in Christ and to be a part of a, a community like this. It's going to get tougher. We talk about this a lot at the lead team level. But I will also tell you, and this will surprise, I found out this morning at the production meeting, this might surprise some people. I'm actually kind of excited about this. <laughs> like, Frank's happy about something? Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm, I might have to do some work with my therapist in that regard. But at any rate, um, in sober-mindedness, in sober-mindedness, I've thought a lot about this. I'm optimistic, hopeful, and excited for three reasons. Number one, historically, we know for a fact that when faith gets tested by persecution, faith gets stronger. And the church gets stronger and shines brighter. That's just a fact. It was a missionary in China once in the underground church, and he was praying that the church would, would not be persecuted anymore in China. And as he's praying that prayer, the pastor is praying a prayer against that prayer because he knows that the reason they're making a difference is because they're being persecuted. Now, Peter says, don't go looking for it. I'm not looking for it. I'm just telling you it's a reality, but it's going to make us stronger. Second of all, it gives us the opportunity to truly demonstrate genuine love. You know, it's easy to love somebody who loves you back and thinks you're terrific. You realize that, right? You ever notice that Jesus never stopped loving and forgiving even as they were nailing him to the cross? Never stopped loving or forgiving. We're going to truly demonstrate genuine love. And third... There's a fracture that occurs between those who are serious about faith and those who really like faith as long as it's convenient and comfortable. There's going to be a fracture. But, but God talks about this relentlessly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there's going to be a faithful remnant, that there's going to be some pruning that's done, that there's going to be a shakeout. And the reason God likes the pruning and the shakeout is because the body gets stronger when it's pruned and when it's shaken out. You ever tried to kill a bougainvillea by just cutting it back? You just make it stronger. The church is a bougainvillea. Bet you'd never heard that before on a Sunday morning. First Peter chapter 4, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice because you are participating in Christ's sufferings. I've heard it said before, and I, and I think it's true, it's a lot easier to die for your faith than to live for your faith. We are called to live for our faith in this current context. We may see darkness ahead, and that darkness is real. The darkness has always been there. It, it seems to me it's a little bit more obvious and more aggressive now. I have a uh, David Massey, who is leaving for a boot camp in a couple of weeks. had my last Sunday morning run with him this morning. Um, you know, he's all, all things military and weapons and all that stuff. He showed me this incredible tiny little flashlight that's about this big 
that is the most powerful flashlight I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's very lightweight. It's $60, and I got one. Uh, the reason is because when I run in the morning, I always run before the sun comes up because it's just cooler then, and I need a good flashlight, and this thing just blows the darkness away. But if I'm finishing a run after the sun has come up, that light doesn't do any good in the light. It's only in the darkness that that light is any good. You understand that the church is going to shine brightly in this darkness. The, the true body of believers, this is our opportunity to truly make a difference. That light only makes a difference in the darkness when I'm running in the dark. It makes no difference in the light. We will make a difference in this present darkness. And we should rejoice in that. And that's our call. And we're going to do it by the power of the resurrected Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this truth and, and for how you call us and equip us and challenge us. We are just genuinely grateful for your work in our lives. And though there are times when we um, become fearful, we pray that you would very simply just lift us up by the power of the filling of your Holy Spirit. Remind us of the gospel, of the good news. Let us preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.